Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that, what does it do, Rob? Makes your skin vibrate. Yes, it does. Good vibrations. <laughs> Making his triumphant return to the show, former Spoons and Honeymoon Suite keyboardist Rob Proust. Rob, welcome back, my friend. How are you? Happy New Year. So glad to be back. Happy New Year to you. Thank you very much for taking the time. I appreciate it, man. We've been talking about it for ages. Like, I mean, since since even before we did the first one, I think you were like, you know, you could always do another one. Oh, yeah. Oh, you so. and I could do like 20 more for sure. <laughs> we could write a book. We, could, <laughs> we actually could, couldn't we? Well, you could. <laughs> so what's going on in uh, New York City, man? It's really cold. Yeah. Uh, alternating between whipping winds and snow and rain, which it might be the same thing that's happening up in Canada as well. But you yeah. know, it's it's springish at the same time, so it's it's a little bit of everything, and it's it's beautiful though. Yeah, I have to get back down there at some point. You do. I had a uh, speaking engagement that's kind of fifty-fifty, so I'm going to follow up on that. And if I do get down there, I'd, you and I have to get together for sure. That would be really cool. Get it to fifty-one forty-nine and make it happen. <laughs> do my best <laughs> okay so you have got a great theme for us today i really like this so being the the wonderful canuck patriot that you are rob you've got five songs that were primarily hits in canada and nowhere else now that's with the exception of one song and that one song you and i talked about and it's it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a song it's a song that i've always despised uh-huh. <laughs> so it was like I kind of I kind of hissed when I saw it on your list, but you know that that's the that's the beauty behind uh, democracy is that it allows for individuality and and of course you know definitely and I and I I feel the same way like I know that there's there's something for everybody and you it is democratic but at the same time you don't have to like what everybody likes and I I guess maybe when we think of like when I think of songs from like early on in my life I think how I learned to love so many different types of music. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really care. Like, I, there were very few songs that I was like, oh, my God, I have to turn the radio off right now. This is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I sort of learned to like such a broad range of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, we got to narrow our, our, our tastes as we got older. And, as, you know, as you get to, like, hit fast forward or make your own playlist or whatever. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm glad that you don't like that song. <laughs> I think a lot, but I think a lot of people don't like it, but then there are a lot of people that do, but it probably because it's overplayed to death, dude. Yeah. Well, that's a big part of it, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got your five songs here. That song is in the second position. Okay. So before we get to that one, you've got one on here that we talked about last night, too, that uh, yeah. is by Sweet Blindness, and it's called yeah. National Potty, and that's P-O-D-D-Y. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about this tune, man. It's so weird that um, it it was a song that I never had the single when I was a kid, but I remembered it always as just as a song on the radio. So it was, I think the chart action for that song was like was around 1976. So it's like prime disco era funk, but you've also got Elton in his in his glory, and ABBA was coming up, mm-hmm. and I mean Queen had just done Bohemian Rhapsody, and that was the era of Night at the Opera. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this song sort of s- sat in the middle of it all to me because. It was a little bit rock and roll, but it had these really crazy, like, funky clavinets and things happening as well. Yeah. And even though I never owned the record, like, owned the 45, it was just a song in the playlist of my life at the time, and I always loved it. And and then I kind of forgot about it for years, and I think at some point in the last 10 years, I was on YouTube 
there's a couple of uh, YouTube channels where they would be posting all these obscure 45s. And there was one guy who was doing all these great Canadian songs. And I was like, oh, my God, these are all songs that I remember so well that I'm sure nobody else, like in America, for sure, nobody knows these songs. Yeah. And National Party came up and I was like, oh, my God, just from the name, I remembered it instantly. <laughs> That's so funny. Why, why they thought they were so cool to spell party like potty in the first place. <laughs> you know, it's just so bizarre. But then when I listened to it again, I flashed back to that era and I was just uh, starting to play pop songs. Like I was just starting. I had been playing classical piano for a few years already. Mm -hmm. And I had realized, oh, that if I had uh, sheet music for Elton John or for Queen, I could play those songs as well. But I was also like really in love with Kiss because because I mean Kiss Alive was just out around that time and Destroyer yeah, was out 75 so when this song National Potty yeah right so when National Potty was on the radio I totally thought it was Gene Simmons oh wow really because he starts off the song and he's like oh yeah and it sounds <laughs> it sounds like something that Gene Simmons would do it, on Kiss Alive it actually does you're right and I don't I don't even know if I had Kiss Alive yet at that time I might have yeah but I, I, I still feel like songs were sort of washing over me on the radio in a way that I wasn't quite being that specific about what I was hearing. You know, like I wasn't like a real collector at that point anyways, mm -hmm. just getting to know all the music. And, and somehow that song made me think of Kiss. And yet it was like super funky at the same time. So that is so funny. Yeah, I, just weird. Well, you, you told me about this and I went back and listened to it and I do hear Gene Simmons in there for sure. I, I didn't know much about the band or you know, who was involved with it, except that I, I had a, a cousin who was a friend of the lead singer, Bobby DuPont, mm -hmm. and passed away five years ago. And I, I think I met him at some point in the 80s. My cousin was living in Toronto and, and had like, had a Christmas party, and I'm pretty sure I met him there. Oh, wow. But I had no idea he was a member of Sweet Blindness, and at that time I knew nothing about I probably wouldn't have even remembered who Sweet Blindness were mm -hmm. until somebody said National Potty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I guess the, some of the Musicians on the on the record were like big time Toronto session music, musicians like Doug Riley and Dominic Triano was I think maybe had done some work on it as well. I don't know. That's about all I know about it except that I just love the song. Well, it's great. It's great to find those things. You know, I was a fan in the '80s of a lot of obscure music, and uh, I thought it was just lost. You know, and then now with the advent of the internet and stuff like that, uh, Spotify, you can actually go through and kind of dig down and find this stuff. And it's like, wow, I completely forgot about this. Yeah, totally. And I think what I enjoy more as well in that in that same ability is to to go into the history of the songs. And like what I'm always loving to do is to discover the, the connections and the collaborations on songs. Because mm -hmm. if I hear something like like one of the other songs in, in our list, which I'll talk about it when we get to it, but just like people who who might be a, a a player on a song or a session musician or an arranger or whatever, I love going back and then rediscovering what else these guys worked on because then I I it's like a like I'm like visualizing this chart in my head of well God no wonder I love this song because the same guy who did the string arrangements did this song yeah. and did that song yeah. and you just realize the small it's a, it's a smaller community of musicians creating these things in a, in a way. Oh yeah, definitely it is, definitely it is. Yeah, especially when you get to to music that was coming out of out of New York and in L.A. and you hear the stories of the session musicians who were like on all the Motown records and all the L.A. players who were on like all the Phil Spector records and all the Beach Boys records. And it's like the same core group of people who had this thing, you know, going on and they were responsible for such a wide variety of stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. In L.A. they did the same thing, you know, around the same time. There's yeah. just a, a core um, kind of group of really ace musicians that everybody would totally, go to. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They call they call them the wrecking crew. That's right, exactly. 
Yes. And and then they also made the music that was on like the, the, on TV, like on the Partridge Family. There's a lot of that under, under the underscoring music and That's right. the actual records were made by those same people as well. Yeah, and a lot of those guys wrote the uh, the the Christmas carols too. Right. You know, a lot of those Christmas carols that we know and love now were written in you know California in July. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, this is right. so strange, right? Okay, so uh, do you want to talk about your next tune here? <laughs> I guess we should take care of business and get it done. Great segue. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, what do you have to say for yourself, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> See, it's it's one of those things. It comes back to the context of your life, I do believe. Yes. And I think that it, it was the summer of... Again, it's that same time. It's like my childhood. It's the summer of 74. Mm-hmm. And Taking Care of Business was was a song on the radio that happened to have a rockin' piano on it. Yep. And I think what was happening to my brain at that time was I was I was learning to translate and, and, and correlate what I was doing with my with my piano teacher, you know, practicing my scales and stuff and and learning to love that classical music. I was starting to tune into hearing piano on the radio and my brain was like, do 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 there's Elton John. Do 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 and it's just recognizing piano, and that was around the same time that um, Marvin Hamlish was on the charts with The Entertainer by Scott Joplin yes. because it was in the The Sting. Yeah. So taking care of business happened to be right around that same period as well. So it's such a like you know straight ahead rock and roll song, mm-hmm. and I think the thing that that always held my attention to it for years was just the piano because for years I I would think I was playing that piano part like so when I was. 10 years old and it was in my first band and I didn't have an electric keyboard yet or anything and we could only practice in, my, in our drummer's basement because he had a giant upright piano yeah. his dad his dad played piano and one of the first songs I like wanted to play was Taking Care of Business because they they kind of played it we so my, my friend who lived across the street Bob Hunter he played bass and uh, he had this band called the Flipside Five okay and he said, "Oh, you know, we we want to play some songs that that need some piano, so you should come over and come to a to a practice." And that was definitely one of the first songs I said, "Yeah, we have to do that song." Oh. And the first time I tried like play that that kind of rock and roll Jerry Lee Lewis kind of style that's on the song, mm-hmm. and I did I did a glissando down the piano, and I got this huge blister on my finger because <laughs> <laughs> this big old piano, you know, and like ripped the skin off my finger. But I felt so cool. I thought, "Oh my God, this is." This is what it takes, you know. I'm like sacrificing myself. <laughs> and it was probably so bad, but you know, I felt like a like a professional musician already because I went to do this thing and I hurt myself. That is so, <laughs> and it was hilarious. so exciting to think that That's what it takes to get that sound. Yeah. Uh, and then I just then the song just sort of fell into my canon of of my favorite songs from from the early '70s, and it was just one of the songs I sort of forgot about in some ways. Except every time it came on the radio, I never turned it off because I always thought, "Yeah, it's you know, it brings back a happy memory." Yeah. When I got into musical theater way into the 1990s, mm-hmm. and I was doing um, this show, Miss Saigon, and uh, there was a part in that show where I had to play some some rock and roll piano, and it was a little bit free, like like I could sort of like add my own kind of style to it, you know, in a okay. little way, a couple of little exposed sections, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be really authentic, and I sort of discovered that I could go back to my childhood and listen to all that music again, and and dig up Elton John songs, and, and I finally like tried to actually properly learn how to play Taking Care of Business, and I never did over the years before that, but when I was finally older and could could understand it mm-hmm. i kind of taught myself it a little more properly you know but then you know there's the do you know the famous story about the piano on that song like how it was recorded no there was a myth that went for years and years and years that 
uh, that they were in the studio recording in Seattle. And had, they had finished the song and uh, they were in the studio and they had ordered a pizza and a pizza delivery guy came by and said, oh, that song's pretty. He dropped off the pizza and they were playing the track back. And he said, oh, that's pretty good. But, you know, it could use some piano. Mm. And they were like, really? And he's like, yeah, I'm a piano player. No. And the guy went in the studio and he like laid down one take of the song. And that's the piano track that is on the song. That is amazing. It's not, but then, so years later, the, it turns out that that is not exactly the true story. That the guy happened to be in, the, in another studio in the, in the same recording studio. There was another uh, session happening down the hall. It was like Steve Miller or somebody. Okay. And his keyword, his keyword player happened to be there. And I think maybe the, the BTO engineer asked him to like lay down a piano track. But he wrote the chords down on a pizza box or something because that's all he had. Oh. Really, it was like one take and this guy like gave it all he had. And that was the thing. Wow. That's so cool, eh? That was, that was really cool, but I, th- I mean, for years and years, it was the the pizza delivery guy was the story that they that Randy Bachman would always tell the story, and then years later, people started saying, "Is that really true?" And I think one of the other guys started saying, "It's really not that true, but it's very romantic." Ah, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't make me like the song anymore. Uh, <laughs> well, you know what? We should get get one time. We'll get together and you, you learn those three chords, and I'll play it with you, and we'll do it together. And what is it like G, C, and D? It's like C, B flat, and F. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, it, we'll have fun together playing it. We, well, you know, that actually might make me enjoy the song a little bit more. Any song that you don't like, you can learn to love it more if you have to play it. No, if I play it with you, I'll probably like it. <laughs> okay, you, we'll you, try it. Well, you can convert me. The BTO will be very proud of you for that. I'll try. <laughs> but you must, have, you must have loved some BTO songs. Um, or maybe not. Yeah, not really my thing. Not really. Yeah. Uh, there's something about their just the simplicity of those songs. Like I had BTO's greatest hits and I just dug all those songs. Yeah. What are some of the other ones? Uh, but baby, you just ain't seen it in nothing yet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that in the guess who I just, I never, I appreciate the musicality of the guess who, but never really got into it, you know? Really? Yeah. I got into the guess who right around that same time and, and didn't have the appreciation for their earlier stuff. Like I probably, I think my my first Guess Who song was probably "Clap for the Wolfman." Oh, really? Which, for people who love the Guess Who, were probably like that is like the worst song ever. But I think it's just the <laughs> song because I love Wolfman Jack. Yeah. And I love Werewolves when I was a kid. <laughs> and so, so and Five Man Electrical Band had a song called Werewolf. Yeah. At the same time too. That's right. And so it was all about the werewolves in the seventies. And uh, well, American Werewolf in London actually came out around that time, didn't it? And then Warren Zevon as well. That's right, right? Werewolf in London. Yeah. Yes. Uh, here's a guy. Your next tune, Rufus Wainwright and Foolish Love. Great song. It's a good song, right? Did you know that from his first album? Yeah, I did. I'm a fan yeah, of I this. Mean, I am too. And it, I mean, that's the first thing anybody heard. Like when I think back, so that's 20 years. That album came out uh, almost 20 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I and I think back to that time, and I probably read about him before I actually finally went and got the CD and, and, and listened to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the hype before I heard it made me inclined to not like him. Yes, I can see that. Because people were, were like anointing him with the next great thing. Like as the album was being released, he was getting these really great reviews and stuff. And people were like, well, he's he comes from rock and roll royalty. I mean, his dad and his, his mom, you know. Yeah. And he's got a good good lineage of musical history, and that, and he's got all these great people working on the record, and I was just ready to be unimpressed. <laughs> I, 
unfortunately. <laughs> and and then the, the 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 clincher for me though was that people were saying, oh, he's he's like free. He's he's like the next Jeff Buckley. And Jeff Buckley had just died a year before that. Mm. And so I was, and I already didn't like that because I was like, you know, nobody could touch Jeff Buckley oh, for me. Yeah. I, I had seen him a bunch of times in Toronto and a couple of different concerts um, in when his for when his album was first released in '94, '95. Great. So when people started comparing Rufus Wainwright to Jeff Buckley, I was like, forget it. Yeah. So I started listening to the record and and I didn't want to like it, but I kind of thought, well, this this is really kind of beautiful music. It's pretty cool. Yeah. But I was I was still trying to not like it. Like there was still something about it that I was not sure because I was really digging Radiohead at that time still. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of other kind of stuff. But then Rufus did a, uh, an album release concert in Hamilton at this club. Okay. It was probably like the, the, that summer. And it was a solo concert. And so I thought I should probably go see him live because I can't judge him just by this really orchestral record. I mean, I, I realized how beautiful it really was. But I thought I'm going to just go see him at this gig. And so it was just Rufus solo on piano. And it was a pretty small club, too. And he was so good. And he was like such a funny guy. Yeah. Like, just super entertaining in every way. Like, he's a super gay, funny dude, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, telling stories and, and very flamboyant and, like, self-deprecating and stuff. Yeah. And then and then he would sing his songs, which were sometimes kind of maudlin and little, like, very heartfelt and stuff. And I always liked that kind of combination of those extremes of personality. So seeing him live gave me a whole new appreciation for him. So then I went back to the record. And from then, I think I was like, oh, I get it. I'm, I'm starting to like it now. Mm-hmm. And so... Over the years since then, anytime I hear a record that I don't like first off, I always think, oh, maybe this is one of those Rufus Wainwright things. <laughs> That's your measuring my, my first instinct is to not like something, I am afraid that maybe I'm going to like really fall in love with it. Wow, that's very interesting. I, I love his record. Like now, I think that whole record is just amazing. Yeah. Like, I mean, the orchestrations to just everything, it's just so inventive and, and original. And this is one of those songs that I was talking about earlier where he worked with an arranger uh, who did this, the orchestral arrangements for the song? His name is Van Dyke Parks. Mm-hmm. Van Dyke Parks is was an LA is an LA musician. I first heard of him based on uh, his work with the Beach Boys in the '60s, and he he did work with Randy Newman and with Harry Nilsson. Okay. He was a lyricist. He wrote with with Brian Wilson for. Uh, he started working on the album Smile, which ended up not really getting released, and then they there was lots of bootlegs of the songs. Mm-hmm. And Van Dyke was in there working with collaborating with Brian, but he would do these amazing orchestral arrangements and things so he worked with rufus on a bunch of songs on that first album and foolish love is one of the songs he did mm, i didn't know that it, it really falls like like once you get to know the sound of van dyke parks and his his style you can it's sort of you can sort of recognize it and it's a very quirky sort of americana sound to it i don't know exactly how it is but i just know when i hear it i think oh i just love that sound yeah I'm gonna go way off track here you just kind of reminded me of something so the beach boys good vibrations yeah. What is that instrument that sounds all funky? It's like a Mellotron or something. It's called a theremin. A theremin, that's right. So who, whose idea do you think that was to put the theremin in there? Probably Brian's idea. <laughs> Isn't that like the wackiest thing? It really is. And I mean, the, it, it had a, at that point, I don't know if it was on any other pop song. It was probably on a song before that, but I think that was the one that it really was like, cemented its history, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was used, I mean, it was always used in the 50s and in the 40s and 50s in science fiction films. And like in the day the earth stood still. Yes. Right? And that was kind of the, the iconic image of a theremin was, was doing those kind of weird science, outer space sounds. The funniest thing is I was listening to that song the other day with somebody. And I said, listen to that crazy, and I thought it was a Mellotron or something else. I didn't, I didn't maybe I meant theremin, but. Yeah. Um, 
And I said, you know, I, I always wonder why that's why that's in the composition. Why, if this, you know, Wilson or whoever it was thought to put that in and, and what the oh, yeah. rationale was. And the person said, where? And I said, no, <laughs> listen, you can hear it. And they said, no, I don't hear it at all. Oh, really? And, yeah. So all that's, this time, they heard that song like 50 million times and never picked up that it was even there. That's amazing. It's such an important little melody, too. That's what I thought. Yeah. Totally. It just goes to show uh, you, like how 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 different we all are when we how we how we receive music, right? Absolutely, yeah. And the theremin, I mean, there's a there's a whole fascinating history to that instrument itself because it was invented by this Russian guy, like in the 1920s, I think. Okay. And he was in America, and he got kidnapped by the KGB and and taken back to Russia, oh. and they were using him to like help create these like spying devices and things. Like he was an electronics wizard. Wow. And. Yeah, it's like there's a really amazing biography uh, film, a film all about his life, and it, the, the whole story is amazing. But yeah, it was like pretty sure it's the 1920s that he was demonstrating this thing in America, and he and it was like treated like a serious instrument because there were no electronic things happening at that time, and he, there were a couple of uh, performers who would, were doing serious classical music with it. Yeah. And it was, I mean, there are old recordings of it. It's beautiful, but so spooky at the same time. You are a cornucopia of information, my friend. <laughs> I have a theremin, too. <laughs> Do you really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so when... I have, two, I have two now, actually. Well, I have one that I built uh, with a friend of mine in Toronto. We both... There, uh, Moog um, took over the, the, cop, the, the copyright or the whatever you call it to, to build the theremin, like the, the, the copyright for it. And released uh, a kit in the 1990s for like a build-it-yourself theremin. Okay. So a friend of mine and I in Toronto, we we both ordered them and built them. And it was like a little wooden box, and it's got these two metal poles. One is for the pitch, and one is for the volume. Yeah. And you, you have to connect it up, and then you like you never actually touch the instrument; it's all in the air. Oh, oh yeah, that's, so that's right. That's why it has that little weird sound. So it's like just vibrations in the air, connecting, getting closer and further away from these metal bars. Yeah. I saw so, Joe Bonamassa play one of those once live. They make them now. They're so advanced now that you can you can MIDI them and, and you can control the pitch much easier. Okay. But yeah, they're, like they're so they're they're kind of mass produced by Moog now as well. I mean, it's still not a super popular instrument because it's really hard to play. Mm-hmm. It's a fun challenge. Wow, I just learned so much in this little segment. <laughs> it's only song three, or is it song two? It's number three. No, it's number yes, yeah, number three. So uh, your next one, song number four, is I've never heard the song before, and I've never heard of this artist before. His name is Ray Materic, and the Materic. So- oh, Materic. I, yep. I, you know, I, I have a knack for mispronouncing people's names. I just did this yesterday. I was talking to um, a guy from the UK, Chris Charlesworth, and I was talking about a woman named Gillian Welsh. Mm-hmm. Her actually, and I pronounced it Gillian. I love the song. And, yeah. you know, I said, so Jillian Welch. And he said, well, you know, I'm not going to make fun of you because a lot of people do it. But her name is actually Gillian. And I, yep. <laughs> I felt like such an idiot. I've been doing that a lot lately. <laughs> well, that's it. I don't blame you for that one, though, because Jillian. Well, you know, and it depends if it's a G or a J. I have a friend here in New York named Gillian. Mm. And I always have to, like, bite my tongue because I always want to call her Gilligan, like, for a joke. <laughs> but it's really not. A, it's not funny. <laughs> Because there's it kind such of a, is. It kind of is. To me, like, this, you're one letter away. You know what I mean? That's right. Gilligan Welsh. Exactly. But we, only know, we all really only know one Gilligan in the world. And so it's Gilligan and the skipper and the professor and, you know. Did Gilligan, have, did Gilligan have a last name? 
It did, and I don't remember what it is, but it, there is an actual last name. People are yelling it right now into their listening devices. It was <laughs> Gilligan Williams, damn it. Yes, it's it's a really like normal name. Oh, is it like yeah. Smith or something? I can't remember. <laughs> even the even the skipper has a name too. Oh, really? Oh, but but we're on Ray Materic, but we got out. Look, we got over to Gilligan. And, I, know, I I have no idea how that happened. <laughs> okay, that's the pronunciation. Uh, yes. Okay. So. so. <laughs> Let's get back on track here. Uh, Linda put the coffee on is the tune name. Yeah. Doesn't that just sound like a hit? <laughs> like, like you it, could imagine today, sure like, oh, here's a new song from Kesha. It's Linda put the coffee on. <laughs> I just don't think it's the kids today aren't going for that, you know. <laughs> ah, here's the latest from Pink duetting with Imagine Dragons. It's Linda put the coffee on. <laughs> we had we had much simpler demands from our music and days gone by it's so true so this was a song i think i think the ray materic was from brantford and i i think he's in hamilton now so he's in the southern ontario area mm-hmm. so i knew the song because it was on the radio on eleven fifty ckoc in hamilton mm. and i don't i i was actually when when i sent this to you i was trying to see if i could even find out how high it got on the charts because i didn't really know um, I knew it was in the top forty anyway, so I don't even really know what its what its positions were. I just knew that I like it's just one of those songs. I wouldn't say it's like my favorite song of all time, okay. but but when I think of like the feeling of listening to the radio, and if if I think of that song, it makes me really really happy because it's not a great song. I mean, it's a it's a really simple love song, and just like practically nondescript, and I guess you might call it almost country these days. Mm-hmm. But I just really, I don't know, I, I have a warm spot in my heart for it. It reminds me of waking up in the morning like I would, I had a, like my clock radio behind my bed, like on the little shelf behind my bed. Mm-hmm. And I'd wake up at whatever time for school and CKOC would be on and I'd listen to the, to the whatever was playing in the morning. And it would just set my day off right. See, that is the specialness of music right there, isn't it? Totally. It doesn't, you know, regardless of quality or anything else, if it just, if it lights your fire, so great. Absolutely. And that's why this song, it, it doesn't, it, I mean, in my list, lists of obscure Canadian songs, this is definitely on that list. Like when I, when I had first said to you, I wanted to do like just Canadian songs. Mm-hmm. I have this playlist in iTunes that's got like 25 or 26 songs that mean so much to me that not even probably a lot of people in Canada would be like, I don't really know that song. Cause it might've only been a hit in Hamilton or like a bigger hit in Hamilton than in other places across the country. Yeah, yeah. But I just don't care because for me, it's like it's as big as like a song from Elton John or from ABBA or, you know, Springsteen, whatever. Yeah. And I and sometimes I feel like maybe some of the music that I've been a part of might have that same effect on people. Like I think, well, our Spoons tunes were like Canadian hits and there's pockets of people in other places that know of them. But I feel like. The, like like my friends, the friends that I have on Facebook and on Twitter and stuff, and when when we have talks about music and people tell me how much our music means, I think that's super cool because that's the same feeling I get from Ray Materic. To be quite honest, I'm I'm serious. I get that feeling when I hear Romantic Traffic. Do you really? Yeah, I do because it, it was it was formative when I was growing up. I mean, it wasn't like the the be all end all song, of course, but like right. it, it means something sure. to me because when I was a kid. I, I heard it and I gravitated to it and I really loved it. And, you know, I heard, yep. I heard it on the radio three days ago and I turned it up. Did I, I love the Oh, yeah, it plays up here, Rob, all the time. I love that. There's a station called 97.3 Boom FM. I love Boom FM. Yeah, there you go. They play it all okay. the time. 
That's cool. Yeah, I love – and actually there's an article that I just saw online yesterday that I haven't read yet, but I'm, I'm, it's saved to be read. And I think it's maybe an interview with the program director and it's something about him talking about his – how he, he formats the music on the station and why he's, he's basically following the radio trends of like 30 or 40 years ago because it, it gives a deeper meaning to people's music. Uh, when you're not being so formulate and following like the corporate rules across the country or across the world so or whatever, true. You know? so I true. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So true. Yeah, that's great. Spoons gets uh, a lot of love up here. I'll tell you that. Cool. Yeah, that's amazing. So your last tune is a tune by the Kings, and it's called yeah. "This Beat Goes On," switching to glide. That was a song that may have been a big hit outside of Canada as well. In fact, I know it was on the American charts too. Yeah. And I think that may have also helped it get a bigger push in Canada because um, it was produced by Bob Ezrin, who had done Pink Floyd and he, you know, he yes. was a kiss, yep. all kinds of people. And um, it was just one of those songs for me that was like another formative part of my growing up in, in the music world. I was in high school and I guess I was like, like riding the line between what had come before and what was about to come like in in the world of music and the new wave that was happening you know mm -hmm. it was 1980 when that was released yes and so i i had already been in bands for years at that point and i was sort of i think it, i was sort of in between bands and i had just just been in a band with some guys in burlington and we were doing much more like what i would call straight ahead kind of music like like more rock we did a song by the who mm -hmm. uh we but we also did a song by blondie nice and then we we did the we did Rush's song Spirit of Radio. Wow! But then we did like God another like uh, Leonard Skinner kind of stuff. So it was this real mishmash of That's stuff. That's cool. You know? And it was fun for me. But th and these guys were all older than me too. Mike Thomas, I believe, was the guitar player in that band, and Mike is still playing guitar. I think he lives down in the states now in okay. Florida, maybe. But it was it felt like a transitional time for me because I wasn't sure where I fit into that to a lot of that kind of music because. I wasn't playing like like Elton John and Queen like just piano. I felt like there was this new this new demand happening with electronic stuff. Yeah. And we do a song like Rush's Spirit of Radio and I wasn't sure exactly what to play cuz they didn't have a keyboard player but there were some synth parts happening, you mm -hmm, know. Mm -hmm. Uh but then Blondie had a keyboard player but we were only doing this one song by them. Which so, one? Uh we did um One Way or Another. Nice. Which I love. That yeah. was a great great guitar riff, man. Totally, dirty totally. sound. I love it. Great tone. Exactly. But then, but then the the new wave stuff was kind of sneaking onto the pop charts as well. And so, like the cars were on the radio. And I think when the Kings came along, it was really that was when the transition was really happening. I think it was the shift was starting to happen because mm -hmm. it definitely had more of that like punky kind of Elvis Costello organ sound yes. on it, you know, like that. But then there was some kind of cool like like more seventies synthesizer stuff as well. Yeah. And for me, it's like that perfect, it's like the missing link in, in the, between rock and roll and new wave. And I just always loved that song. And it, it gave me that feeling of, wow, this is like where the, the future is some is buried in there somewhere, you know? That's a, that's a very and, astute way of describing that song. You're totally well, right about came, that. And they came to my high school. They came and played at Nelson High School. And I think I was probably in grade nine. Mm-hmm. And so seeing them live too, like blew me away because yeah. I thought, holy crap, these are the, here's the guys with this hit song. And seeing them live was, I just thought it was amazing. And their keyboard player was this super cool dude. He was really tall with dyed blonde hair. And he was like jumping up and down behind his keyboard. And I thought, man, I can't do that. Like, I'm like, what's happening there? Because if that's what I have to do, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, so that was intimidating. But I thought, well, this is the new wave. These guys are like pogoing on stage and stuff. So I better figure out what's, you know, what's next for me. Um, <laughs> 
but then I like in that same period I had then discovered the Boomtown Rats from mm-hmm. England mm-hmm. and I had I'd gone to see them perform in Toronto at Seneca College and then I discovered Gary Newman and then like all the new wave stuff was my my shift was was like it was happening and then the end of that year was when I joined the Spoons nice so I went through that year without actually being in a band but spending most of my time in in my bedroom with a with a reel to reel tape recorder and my keyboards and like playing music by myself and just sort of trying to go what's happening like what am I going to do now because I can't do this on my own but I didn't have anywhere to be yet so the future was like in wait was waiting for me that is a really nice window of insight into how you got started just before the spoons that is so cool just before the so then what happened was then I joined the band and we did our first album and and this was all like the following year and we did it. We got to do a gig opening for the Kings. Oh, wow. Because we were doing at that time, we were mostly playing colleges and universities. That was yeah. our, our market at that time before we had any songs on the radio when we had just done our first album. Mm-hmm. And, and that was our market because Gordon, Sandy and Derek had they had all just recently graduated from college and university. Mm-hmm. And I was still in high school. But our, our I think our market was like what in those days was the alternative market was the colleges. And, and our first album hit like went to number one on the college charts across the country. Yeah in the summer of 1981, I guess. So that was around the time that we did this gig. And I believe it was in, it was either in Guelph or in London at Western. We will, and we opened for the Kings. Oh, wow. Is it during like frost week or something? Probably was. Yeah. That was always the time to do a really good gig. Yeah. Wow. That so is... we did the gig and it was really good. And it was, it was a good gig for us. Cause we got to, you know, have their crowd cause they were drawn in the crowds. Yeah. So for us, it was really exciting. But then what I always remember, the next week, there was a review in the, in the school paper, uh-huh. and the headline said, Fresh Spoons Meet Road Weary Kings. Oh. And I was like, oh, what is that? Wow. And I, felt, and I, felt, I thought, man, we got a great review, but the guy really didn't like the Kings, and I felt really bad about that. Mm. And it's like it, it kind of bummed me out thinking, oh, so this is, this is the power of the press, and, and you're sort of at the mercy of some guy who's in a bad mood or you know, likes the opening band more than the headliner and they can write whatever they want. And it sort of hurt me. But at the same time, I thought I was excited that we got a good review. For sure. But years later, I became friends with, with the guitar player from the Kings. His name is uh, John. He calls himself Mr. Zero in the band. Yeah. But um, he's based in Oakville. And we had done some work together, uh, some sessions in Burlington many, many, many years later. But it was always cool to just meet him and get to know him. Because I always think back to those days of like, like idolizing them and then kind of working with them and then just getting to know him in a different way. That's, that's an incredible feeling. That's awesome. Yeah. It is. Wow. Is that my last song? That is your last song. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. <laughs> we could go on and on and on. We could, we could, um, you know what? Let's, uh, put together five more. Do this again. What do you say? Okay. Yeah. yeah. We should come up do, with a new theme. I, mean, I, I like not picking a theme, but I do like picking a theme too. Cause it sort of has to rein it in a little. This entirely up to you, man. Whatever you want to do, just send me a text. All right. Yeah. Well, we always have great chats and you, you know, if they, if they go off track, then who cares? Right. I like that. Well, they're not, they're not off track. They're on the same track. Just, just taking a little detour. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have a destination, but you don't really, you, you want to see the sights along the way. It's like somebody else is driving and we don't have to keep our eyes on the road. We can look out the window and say, oh, what's happening over there? So because now I can tell you, I mean, we talked about it before, but I'm loving your new book so much. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Here's, here's the quote that I love, which is kind of, to me, it's like sort of the, uh, the, the tagline for, I think, for the conversations you have. You say, everything we take from music is rooted in how we receive it mm-hmm. through the prism of our own personal experiences. Mm-hmm. 
music will always be modulated by our own individual biography. Yeah. It, it's just what is so true. Yeah. That's exactly how I see it. Well, I'm really glad that you are enjoying the book, my friend. That is so great. I really am. And I'm reading it so quickly because I like I connect with it. Like I feel like it's almost like I'm sit I'm sitting there as part of the conversation and part of the story because it's it's like you and I sitting here talking in the same way, you know. But you know what? This podcast is an extension of that book because, it, you know, yeah. after it was done, I thought it was such a great experience and, and I enjoyed it so much that like, how can I share this with people? Right. And so, you know, and, and Joel McIver, wise man from the UK, he's a writer. He said, you know what you should do? You should like make a business of that and take it on the road and take people out to, to, to BAMF with their playlist. I was going to just say the same thing. That's right. You should say, fire the BAMF and do a weekend. <laughs> Jensen Rock Tours. But um, I said, no, like, if I did a, a podcast and invited people on to talk about the music that moved them and made their skin vibrate, then that would be a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you're amassing a, a num- the number of conversations you're having now. I guess you do recognize the, the same universal quality Oh yeah. in each, per- in each person's personal experience yes. where it's, it's universal. Because if I mention a song that you don't like, there's still probably lots of people that, that recognize that same song and have that same feeling. Oh, yeah. And because the, like, think of how lucky we are that, that we do have that collective experience of like hearing songs on a radio and having having the experience of uh, listening alone but recognizing that we aren't alone because w- well we are alone together oh my god it's a song by crowded house <laughs> <laughs> or the police message in a bottle or the police. that's right yeah well thank you very much i appreciate that you are welcome and thank you for your time today i'll talk to you again all right i'll send you a text soon my friend thank you Thanks, Brent. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Rob Bruce. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 